Oh, kia ora koutou. Welcome to Circuit Cast here. News and views on moving image and art from Aotearoa and beyond. And I am at the Elam School of Fine Arts at the University of Auckland, my old alma mater, I think we might call it. And I'm here with someone I, I used to hang around with a little bit in those old days, uh, who's now at the Elam School of Fine Arts as a lecturer, and that is the artist Joyce Campbell. Kia ora. Kia ora, Mark. It's nice to be here at Elam with you. Hear the familiar whir of the air conditioning in the School of Fine Arts Library. It has not changed very much in the interim, Mark. <laughs> I don't think it has oh. too much, no. Well, we're not here to talk about that. We're actually here on a rather auspicious, wonderful occasion, which is that you have been nominated for the Walters Prize and a part of the exhibition that's about to open and is on until the 30th of October at the Auckland Art Gallery. Um, where's it at at the moment? You, you must be in install mode at the moment. I am. I went down to the gallery this morning and looked at the build-out, uh, which was really exciting actually, because it's uh, working with the Auckland Art Gallery is on a whole different kind of scale from any opportunity I've had of late in terms of um, the production values and the literal scale, the size of the space and the way that they can shape the space with their amazing install team. So it was looking extraordinary, actually. I'm really excited about it. And a rendition of this, or a version of this work, has just been also at the Sydney Biennale, in, um, down in a tunnel, I think, at Cockatoo Island. So very different environment from that, I should think. Completely different environment. I loved, I shouldn't call it my tunnel, but I feel really possessive of it. I loved the tunnel on Cockatoo Island for totally different reasons. It's like a sort of a tunnel, like a, almost like a miners' tunnel that crosses... Cross, it's like a cross-section of the island, isn't it? From memory, I didn't go this year, but I've been it's previously. It's beautiful. It runs straight through a whole lot of um, maybe sandstone uh, that has, uh, you can see the um, geology of the island uh, all through the tunnel. It's Whoa. been bored through um, maybe a century ago. Uh, the island was used particularly heavily during World War II to build boats, but also submarines. And the work that I'm... Um, focused on at the moment, Flight Dream, which I installed there, is about someone going deep into the um, deepest, darkest corners of the ocean, the Marianas Trench, in a submarine. So I really was particularly... I was very focused on trying to work in that particular site. Not a particularly easy site to work in, um, not a particularly obvious place to install video. It wasn't... Um, set up particularly well for that when we first went into the space. In fact, it wasn't even offered as, as an installation space. Oh, okay. But the um, but I kind of went back the next day and wandered around and sort of found the second tunnel and and found a a little alcove within it where we could project and um, it's actually perfect for that kind of work in a way. Um, but very very basic. The Sydney Biennale um, Biennale didn't. Uh, have a lot of budget. Um, we were working with very, very simple sound. I took my own speakers. Um, Whoa! From here at Elam. I always think when you go to Sydney, you might get the, you know, the wealthy treatment and get everything. It's an amazing experience, up. and it's a great experience. But I was installing in two different venues, so. Oh yes, uh, yes you had a ton of, your Tonyfo work at the Art Gallery of New South Wales as well. I did, you? yeah, yeah. Mm. So you know, um, essentially, because I was working with two different venues and two different pieces. Um, you know, it was really about working with the site and working on a shoestring to a certain mm. degree, and that worked really well for this space. It was um, quite a 
a sort of humble, intimate installation, but because the space itself was so dramatic and it had amazing acoustics and it was really, you know, subterranean and wind kind of howls through it and it's right by the flooded dry dock where the submarines were made. It just, and, and you know, to get there you have to take a boat and yeah. the sounds of scraping metal and the smell of sea salt and the whole thing is really part of the experience of the island. Right. I think it really gets people into a certain frame of mind that um, that is pretty interesting to start with. The work that I'm um, making here is... Um, sort of in dialogue with and oriented around a science fiction story and it has a quite rather sinister uh, and um, industrial kind of quality. The island was totally mm. absorbing in that way, so it was a great place to be able to install. This time round at the Auckland Art Gallery, it's a completely different scenario. It's a very large, clean space and very controlled and amazing video projection technology. Um, Three-channel? Three-channel uh, watch-out system, which but allows... So it's not been three-channel before, just the just No, the, the three-channel work is brand new. Um, almost all the footage is new. Um, the sound has been re-recorded to some degree. Uh, there's a narration that's much more controlled than before. Um, and the three-channel situation is uh, particularly interesting because I'm able to project onto a curved screen, and oh. that's part of the technology that they have, and wow. that allows me to create almost like a kind of bowl or cave or sense of being in the interior of a vessel mm. and that's very appropriate to the work wow yeah so this is really interesting in terms of the artist protest process because i think an earlier version you worked you've got a fantastic uh, uh sound recording collaboration with a musician from the states that was and there was a performance aspect when it was first done and then of course there was a, a two rooms exhibition here and I think maybe Australia Centre of Photography Sydney uh, so it's, and it sounds, it sounds like it's constantly evolving as a subject matter as a theme as a work that can have all these different iterations where the work is re- essentially remade all the time yeah I, I work like that quite a lot actually um, okay. well I seem to in the last decade or so to kind of revisit projects and reiterate them in different ways so, so is it ever going to be finished or is it just always going to continue to I think you get to where you're obviously coming up with a kind of fairly coherent version of the thing. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, asking a painter if they've finished their painting, right? At a certain point, you have to make a call. But in this case, the different um, sites, the different install sites, have been so radically different in what they enable that there's an invitation to keep working on the piece. One of the things that's going on is that when I first started working with this content, it was photographically, not in video, and it was also uh, on 16mm and 8mm film. So that was way back in, I think it was 2002, and I was working at the Govett Brewster on the residency. I was doing diving. I learned to dive while I was down there, and I was doing a lot of underwater filming with um, these beautiful little underwater Super 8 cameras, um, as well as working with a Bolex and I was making film loops. Um, so at that point, I needed to work on a catalogue, and I got Mark von Schlegel. I asked him to write a catalogue essay, well, actually a short story narrative for me. Um, so really a long time ago, and it's that narrative that's been chewing away at my, my I don't know, chewing away in terms of my creative process for years and years, and I always wanted to turn it into a film. 
And basically I got um, research and study leave, sabbatical. I had some time. I was going back to the States and I decided to do it then. Mm. And I thought I was going to work in film in 16 mil. And um, when I actually started to work with the material, it became incredibly clear very early on that um, it was very subjective, instantaneous and subtle and that digital technology in this particular instance would be vastly more receptive to the kind of material I was working with than film. So that's interesting because there was a quote that I've got here and I don't know if you wrote it from the, from previous work saying that contemporary cameras do not lend themselves to the depiction of mystery um, and that the digital technology is increasingly descriptive and that your use, because you're well known for your use of amber types and so forth and working with those earlier technologies and of course using 16 mil earlier here, it's kind of an interesting thing. Do you think, is it a different situation with video or do you think you lose something? I mean, Well, in this particular instance, because of the way that I'm filming, it is inherently mysterious and I have very little control over the imagery as it emerges. So I think I am always interested in not being able to control my image making completely. Okay, it becomes yes. quite boring to me when I know precisely what I'm going to get. I lose a little bit of the kick of my own um, discovery. I know that sounds vaguely pretentious, but what I, but, but I kind of like to keep uh, finding things out during the process and... Um, Ambrotype and daguerreotype technology and film technology all lend themselves to that really strongly. All sorts of things can go wrong and you're often not exactly in control. And mm. I'm, particularly with the kinds of um, cameras I work with, often which I've made myself or which are very, very old and haphazard, I don't have a lot of control over the process. That gives me a lot of pleasure because when I go to develop work, I have this moment of really working out what it's going to look like and discovering that two apparently identical plates are very different, for example. Yeah. And that there's a lot of play in there and there's a lot of emergent uh, material in there, stuff that just happens and that um, gives a great deal of the narrative and spiritual drive to the work. But in this particular case, I'm working with digital technology in a totally different kind of scenario. I'm actually filming in a black tank I can see very little of what I'm doing while I do it. Yeah, I was really fascinated to find out how you make this work. So there's there's an aspect to the work in terms of the process that is completely uncontrollable. I set something in motion and then I'm sort of fishing for the imagery and waiting for it to occur, (laughs) waiting for the right timing, the right pace, working in very, very uh, responsive ways in terms of lighting as it's occurring. And I'm just looking through a little portal into a black tank. So because there's so much lack of control in terms of the material subject, Mm. I don't lose any mystery in terms of the digital um, manifestation. In fact, the mysterious moment for me is that in the actual act of shooting. And what I find is that uh, as we move the lights, as I move focal plane, you're essentially painting in real time with this material. It's a really mysterious process, actually, and it's totally revelatory. It's really fun to do. Wow. Wow. It's really pleasurable to do. Right. You, you find yourself extremely involved in it while it's happening. And then you sort of pop out of this. A form you know, of painting with the eye or something, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, it, right. and, and you know, you have this really 
subtle focal control i'm working with slr cameras and macro lenses and very narrow depth of field and i'm in a sort of technical territory that is uh, very very subtle the great thing about a digital camera is you can see exactly what you're doing in real time so you can respond in real time to dynamic scenarios you can't do that with a bolex because you actually just can't see very much there's just not a lot of material making it through the split lens to your eye. So you can't actually tell what you're going to get. In this, so, in, so for that reason, in this particular instance, it's an amazingly repetitive okay. be Everyone's going to be asking, what's in this black tank? Because the, the images I've seen of this sort of work previously is, is you know, this, this kind of ethereal dreamlike, otherworldly. It could be at the bottom of a stream or it could be the bottom of a trench. It's the sort of, that kind of, you know the flora of the the, the unknown <laughs> uh, ethereal world that's close to us but kind of far away. What are you actually doing in the tank? It's entirely constructed. What I'm working with are sculptural objects that I myself have constructed out of silver, and it's an electrochemical process in which they are dropping colloidal silver into suspension. So it's a quite an alchemical process. Crikey. It's highly associated, in my mind, with um, silver gelatin photography. So I'm working oh. with silver in a dynamic electrochemical suspension wow. in real time and filming it. So there's a strong sculptural element to it. I make all the objects. They're all somewhat driven by my interest in um, morphogenesis and simple biological forms, single cell cell organisms, um, diatoms, uh, but also other ideas about what might be floating around in the detritus of the sea, ghost ships and ghost nets and um, and mines and all those sorts of ideas about what uh, populates the deep oceans. That's both natural, if you like, Mm. and and entangled with with, uh, human activity. Mm. Uh, cables so uh, that's what I so so I make these objects that are that are kind of playing around with those kinds of ideas and then I never quite know if they'll work or not when I stick them into the solution mm. and they some of them do and some of them don't some of them I think will be great and they look terrible when I film them they're sort so of characters that, really that, but also that ability to have sort of control but not control your black tank has probably allowed you to continue to make this work or keep working on it in a way yeah, well, there was plenty of stuff that I still wanted to work with. There were plenty of ideas about the forms that I hadn't had a chance to explore. Um, and I had my tank with me. I brought it back from the States and set up. I set up a number of tanks this time. So you started making this work when you were living in L.A.? Would that be Yeah, right? I, did a, I did a year of research and study live in L.A. And because my friend Peter Kolovos, the sound artist, the that made the soundtrack lives in Los Angeles. I was working quite closely with him. Mm. So the first screenings we did were in either noise, con- you know, sort of musical context yeah. or um, cinematic contexts. Right. Oh. Uh, and yeah. he was playing live, live sound. All right. This is a much more controlled thing that so we've we got like going this. now. So we like this. So th- and there's, there's a, a narration now with this new version of the Auckland Art Gallery and the music is not live, it's recorded. Yeah, it's recorded music which I've worked with for a couple of iterations now and the 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 sound is um a short story by Mark von Schlegel and another musician is uh is speaking uh he's in a he's an American so it's all been recorded over there he's somebody I know really well right. and he has an amazing radio voice so I'm, I'm working with him mm. uh, on what 
what is a really quite a, a dark and gothic kind of iteration of the work, I think. Yeah. Wow. Let's talk a little bit, we sort of alluded to this before, but the, the new transformation of the work with Auckland Art Gallery, because the, the Walters Prize kind of um, conditions have sort of changed and maybe are allowing you to um, not just represent what you've already done, but kind of make new work. Is that right? Yeah, and I didn't realise this at all until I got back to New Zealand from Sydney and had my first meeting. It wasn't that long ago. Basically, um, they have shifted the conditions so that you sit down and you have a meeting with the curator and the producer and they say, do you want to show the work that's nominated? Do you want to develop it? Do you want to make a totally new work? And that's a really big question to be confronted with just a couple of months before what is a pretty large show. <laughs> you were just thinking you were going back to work at Elam or something. Yeah. I was, actually. I, I thought it was going to be. That. I actually was, I thought I was going to go into a, a meeting where I had to make a really strong case to change the work because I didn't feel as if the single channel work that I'd made for these other sites would work particularly well within such a large clean context I didn't see it as particularly appropriate I really wanted to expand the work and I didn't and I thought I'd be going in for a fight and I had this amazingly um, just open meeting where everyone just kept saying yes it was extraordinary actually I don't experience that very often Um, and from my perspective as an artist we're always working with limited resources when somebody comes through and says we will make this space work for you and we will allow you to work with another person for you know, a, a certain amount of time, which mm. I need when I'm shooting right. this. I absolutely need another person with me. I can't work completely alone because I can't simultaneously hold and respond to two cameras and a light. Right? So it's not possible <laughs> to do it alone. I can't do all those tasks alone. Um, so when they, when they were prepared to, to some degree, fund the production of new work, I just sort of leapt at that as a possibility. So can I ask a really specific question? Are they, they, are they saying, here's a budget? Or are they kind of saying, we'll just keep on giving you the resources oh, no, they have a budget. The oh, no, they have a budget. Yeah, I've never really seen the budget mm. in its entirety. There's lots of budget elements that artists never quite get to see, you know, how much it yeah. costs to put up the walls and things like that. But, no, they were prepared to um, fund new casting, new, new silver, new mm. um, an assistant to work in... in my space. Well, that sounds, so that, as someone who's involved in producing art, it sounds heavenly just not to have to worry quite so much about the whole of the Well, it shifts the whole thing to a different scale of ambition. And because mm. this piece is innately about immersion, psychological immersion, physiological immersion, sensory immersion, it made a lot of sense to be able to scale it up to an immersive scale. It was always begging that kind of change. And a lot of pieces, I think, are best just shown as they are. There's something about a very direct and humble um, presentation that's entirely apt. But in this particular case, it just makes a lot of sense to be able to explore the potentials of immersion. They also have an amazing video projection facility, which completely changes the uh, the kind of limits around what can be achieved technically and um, they're very very good at managing it so the whole situation is really generous it's the mo- it's one of the most generous gallery scenarios I've ever encountered actually the only aspect to it that's not generous is the time frame it's extremely fast yeah yeah it sounds really compact time frame yeah, yeah it's pretty it's pretty heavy in that regard and they can't control that that's just how the the whole um, process unfolds so they provide you know a lot of support 
but you have to just you know get your mm. your running shoes on and do your thing as fast as you can. Mm. I'm going to just swap to something entirely different now. Well, sort of slightly entirely different, but of course you've just talked about Sydney where you presented the work together, and that is your your ongoing Tanifa series, another work series you've been working on over time, which I think you collaborate with Richard Nia Nia, I think is mm-hmm. his name, and it sounds quite different because I understand you've done work where you've set up a sort of mobile studio at Waikiri Moana and you're photographing on in situ. It, sound, it sounds like a very different place to be working to this. It's an entirely different way of working. I work in uh, Teringa and the Ruakaturi Valley, uh, Papus, where I was shooting most recently. These are very isolated um, rural valleys, uh, about 40 to 60 kilometres out of Wairoa, just on the edge of the Uruwera, so it's not actually right. Waikaramana. Um it's leading into that area, okay. for sure. It sort of backs onto the Uruwera. Is it part uh, of the catchment area for the Waikaramana uh, Lake? Or? Uh, actually, it's the catchment coming down into Wairoa, out oh, of Waikaramana. I see. Yeah. Okay. So I grew up in that area. Mm. Uh, I grew up in the neighbouring valley, and my family's closest friends lived in that valley. So we spent a lot of time there when I was a child, and they, that family, Papa into Te Ringa, where I'm working. Um, so... I've been essentially immersed in that situation since my little girl was born in 2009. Um, she was just a few months old when I started that work. Um, and I've been going back over and over again to do multiple shoots. I shoot in daguerreotype, ambrotype and film, um, all large format. And um, Richard Nenea, my collaborator is uh, the kaitiaki of the sacred corridor associated with the Tanifa Hinikorakor. And we're, we're essentially tracking her passage um, and the Tanifa Rua Mano through, um, through those valleys uh, and also the passage of Te Koti back up through those valleys. And when you say her, her passage, a Tanifa's passage, how do you track a Tanifa's well, passage? Hinikorakor and Ruamano created the river valleys that mm-hmm. I'm right. photographing. Right. Okay. So there are, are a number of sacred sites up the river valleys. Um, and essentially our collaboration is one in which Richard provides the structure um, and the impetus behind the project. Uh, he takes me to sacred sites that are associated with either historic or or mythological entities, and I spend time there and see what the world will give me, really. So it's a very interesting um, dynamic in terms of artist and, um, well, iwi, I guess, but in terms of the he, you say he gives you the structure, he determines where you go, in a way. Absolutely, yeah. But, and yet you have, you have full control over how the work is then realised, or...? I would never realise work without his say-so, and he's always present at the opening of any exhibition. He's always present to frame and bless the work. Uh, But he doesn't actually... He's not a photographer or an artist. That's not his interest. He's a historian and an oral historian and a leader. So Mm. he doesn't have any um, particular interest in describing what the photographs should look like. He, He, I think, trusts me. I trust him deeply and we work together um, in a state of sort of mutually moving forward um, and it's entirely dependent on that relationship. 
Fantastic. Are we, and are we going to continue to see work from that series? Or is that going to, can you see that happening into the future? Oh, yeah. That series is not quite finished, yeah. I don't know if it will become finished, but we're definitely working toward publication. So the goal there really is to um, secure a very, very complex set of narratives um, in the context of diaspora, really, um, Teringa is a tiny village and a lot of people live a long, long way away. We were showing in Sydney, for example, and there were family members living oh, in Sydney. Oh, wow, right, right. Obviously, who came to the blessing um, and met up again for the first time in years. Um, wow. But there were people that came down from Melbourne as well to see the work. Wow. Uh, there are people living all across Australia from the larger hapu um, and, and reconnecting and trying to create quite a, a vivid... Um, uh, physicality, uh, connection with the space of Teringa itself is one of the primary goals of the work, really. So mm. the primary audience for that work is the hapu, Ngai Kohatu, or Ngati Hinehika. The, um, the hapu goes by two names. Um, that's the primary audience. All the other audiences are fine, but are somewhat incidental. Really, we're we're working toward securing this corridor uh, in written form so that it um, maintains its full complexity. Right. Well, I can hear the air conditioning of Edom School of Fine Arts returning to the conversation above us, so I think we're going to leave it there. Joyce Campbell, it's really been a pleasure to talk to you about this work, and particularly uh, on the eve of Flight Dream opening at the Auckland Art Gallery, which people can see until the 30th of October. Kia ora. thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to Circuit Cast. Thanks to the support of Creative New Zealand. You can get more on us at circuit.org.nz and thanks to Talat Long for the music. Kia ora. see you later.